Open, outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. When innovations abound, it's hard to sit still in ophthalmology. Most surgeons are fueled by a commitment to offer patients the best possible care and thus continually welcome the challenge of implementing a new device or procedure. In doing so, we often have access to clinical trial data, peer-reviewed literature, and our colleagues' real-world experience to inform our own decision and plans. But someone always has to be first. In this episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid, I speak with Dr. Dee Stevenson about her experience as one of the earliest adopters of intraoperative aberometry. Dee weighs in on the merits of thinking outside the box, ignoring the naysayers, and learning to exercise patience when using a new technology. Dee also comments on a life-changing event that affected her path to building her now highly successful boutique practice. Here's Dee. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon. Welcome to Ophthalmology Off the Grid. This is Dr. Gary Wirtz, and I am just so delighted and honored to be able to talk to a good friend of mine, Dr. Dee Stevenson. Uh, Dee is down in Venice, Florida in a solo practice. And Dee, um, I know we're going to go all over the board and all, all over the map on topics today, but thank you so much for being willing to share a little bit of your evening with me so that you can tell me and actually all who are listening um, some words of wisdom from your practice and from your life as well. So with that being said, thank you so much for coming on tonight. Well, thank you, Gary. It's always a pleasure to do anything with you. Ah, well, uh, some would argue uh, the, the converse is true, but uh, I'll take it. I'll take it. So, Dee, I, I, I think we could probably start anywhere, but one of my favorite memories is when I think we had just met, and I'm not sure who introduced us. It might have been Mitch uh, Jackson or someone else, but I remember we had a really cool conversation on the ASCRS floor right outside of the Lenzar booth. We actually took a selfie and sent that to uh, someone who both were, are very fond of, who I'm now working for, Lance Ferguson. Uh, Absolutely. Do you, do you remember well, that? Actually, yeah, actually it was, um, we had met the day before at Millennial Eye. That's right, that's right. That's exactly right. And actually right. Bill Wiley introduced us. So, okay, all right. And I had known who you were, and, um, and you know, you're, you're, you have this incredible speaking voice, so it was, all, it was nice to put the voice with the person. And uh, yes, we were on the floor at Lenzar, and we took a selfie and sent it to... Uh, my pal and your pal, Lance Ferguson. But my favorite and fondest memory about that is this. And I said to you, Gary, oh, actually it was not that day, but at the Millennial Eye meeting, I said, Gary, what do you want to do? You said, my ideal, my dream is to be um, Lance Ferguson's partner. And so we sent the selfie the next day from the floor of the Linsar floor. And wouldn't you know, not but maybe a month later or less. Uh, yeah, it wasn't too called. long. It wasn't yeah. too long after that. He called and said, guess what? Guess yeah. what? Yeah. <laughs> so sometimes you send, you send things out into the universe and uh, things just end up working out. And, uh, but when you work with good people, good things happen. Right. Well, and my story kind of starts, you know, um, Lance Ferguson was one of the most um, influential uh, ophthalmologists, uh, you know, my my cohort, if you would say, you know, my, my contemporary, I guess it's a better word. And, um, you know, I, I started practicing in 1988 and, um, in Port St. Lucie. 
Right. And uh, I was in practice a year, um, joined right up with uh, American College of Eye Surgeons, uh, got to know Lance and, and uh, all the rest that are involved with that group um, over the years. And um, then about a year later, I had something happen to me that changed kind of the the way I look at things. And that was I, um, I moved, I was, uh, had, had an opportunity to move to Venice. I did, I was on the West East coast of Florida and I, my home is the West coast. So I was in preparation to move over here to the West coast. And I had an incident that happened and I had a tumor in my spine and, uh, I had a bi- from that, I have a bilateral foot drop and a neurogenic bladder. I learned how to have to learn how to walk again. And I had to straight wow. cast myself for about a year and um, I had made the choice to come to Venice, and thank goodness I made that choice. I joined someone here that I eventually bought out, you know, in the next few years, but it sure made me look at the world a different way, and it also allowed me to know that I was doing the right thing by being in practice by myself. Um, you know, I was of the, I've, I've been out of practice long enough, like Lance, that um, if you wanted things done right, you did them yourself. Right. And, and, you know, we weren't used to sharing the, sharing the burden or any, or the financial burden or the work burden. And, um, that's kind of how I was raised and I've never looked back. Uh, I've been a solo practitioner now, uh, going into my 29th year and, um, you know, it's pretty awesome. That, that's, that is, um, it's kind of incredible. So how long, how long were you into, um, your move to Venice when you had this, uh, I I had my surgery, um, before I moved to Venice, then had my surgery and I was, I was out the, I was, you know, on kind of a sabbatical for about uh, two and a half months. Wow. And, and, And yeah. And then in September, um, I started practicing and, you know, with a, uh, uh, you know, a foot drop and some, you know, things that I had to deal with, but, you know, I was in a place that was beautiful, a place that I wanted to be. Um, I was just kind of the worker bee for this doctor because he was in the Florida house of representatives. So I really came over here, um, when I was in private practice on the other coast to make some extra money on Thursday and Friday when Congress is in session. So it ended up being something that I did full time, but I took a few months off to, of course, try to recuperate. Right. Right. And um, made it, you know, it's a, Venice is a beautiful place, not only to live, but a, a, a pretty place to work. And I worked with a doctor for a couple of years, then he had a massive heart attack. I kind of hung around um, to make sure he was stable. He decided to retire from ophthalmology. I bought him out for, uh, for his pie in the sky, and I moved my office to where it is today and it's a 1926 italian renaissance home oh that's well being in venice that's what you would expect right exactly so and that's where i've been um for quite some time and it's a historical register it's a house so it's very um inspiring to go to and it's very um nice for patients and um it's kind of where my boutique started and yeah you know for me, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of, it's just a general ophthalmologist. And then about oh, a little more, about 10 years, 10 plus years ago, I decided to take a, the big step. And the big step was I ran into a man I know and respect. And that was, uh, Nick Curtis at the, uh, AAO meeting in San Diego or San Francisco. And I bought an aura or an orange. Right. Uh, and I needed something 
to change my game. I was kind of bored with cataract surgery and, and not bored is the wrong word, but not challenged. You know, I did a lot of glaucoma. I did corneal transplants, but I really wanted to be a really, you know, like a premium cataract surgeon. And I was between two really big groups, David Brown, south of me in Fort Myers and David Shoemaker center for sight in, in Venice and in Sarasota. And I needed to do something that was going to change my game. I was already the only girl in town. So, <laughs> right. so that was, right. you know, that was, I was the commodity, you know, people, people went to me just because I was a girl and that was kind of cool. And, um, you know, and I never really felt like being a girl was anything but a plus for me. Um, of course I love being a girl, but, uh, <laughs> but it's also, um, you know, I, I, I have some really great, strong male ophthalmology friends that have never, you know, wavered on uh, telling me it's, hey, it's time to go home, you're a girl, and not taking that personal, or hey, stick around because you really need to hear this, you know, so I've, it's always been in my best interest, and uh, and you know Lance, uh, strong women and bright women are people he likes to hang out with, that's he married right. one and gave birth to one, that's, so. <laughs> that's right, that's right, that's right. So, so uh, you know, my big thing was I stepped off with this orange thing, this intraoperative aberrometer that that uh, a lot of my colleagues and friends kind of poo-pooed. And I was so lucky to be able to work with, um, I was the first commercial, I bought that, you know, there was, of course, um, prototypes that were used in, in research. And of course, Carrier Seal was the first person to get an orange. And I bought the first commercial one and it was installed first. And then I think shortly thereafter, Bill Wiley and Toby Tyson got him. And then the rest is history. He's off to the races. Right. But I got to work with some really fine people, you know, Dan Dury, um, Dick Lindstrom, um, Vance Thompson, you know, of course, Bill Wiley, my, one of my most favorite guys. Um, yeah, you know, same here. Bob Wanstock, <laughs> and, you know, uh, yeah. So let's talk a little, let's dig into that a little bit. So okay. here you are, you're, you're situated uh, in Venice, Florida, beautiful area, very competitive. There, you, you, dro- you mentioned a few names, but there's, there's a ton of incredibly competent um, people within an hour of you. I mean, oh, yeah. you can have, <laughs> you're the all, you can have Mount Rushmore of ophthalmology within an That's hour's right. drive of, of where you're at. That's so, right. so, you know, here you are, you're carving out your little thiefdom. And you're trying to figure out, hey, how do I make my my practice a little bit different? I already have a few little differentiators, but this is a technology I'm going to double down on. And you decided to just go from the very beginning. And that's that's people don't really understand this. You know, it's sort of like when you see on Facebook now, and, and it used to be on websites, and probably still is. But you know, first in you know fill in the blank, first in Florida, first in the U.S. to do X. Those doctors are really putting themselves on the line a little bit because technology in its first iteration is never the best. We just, ha- we just know that. There are gonna be bumps in the road. There are going to be things that um, you sort of have to work out over time. So take me through, um, I, I think we all had the idea that intraoperative aberrometry or choosing a lens based on that highly privileged aphakic state that there could be some real advantages to that. Um, I've talked to Sean Yanchulov, who was the guy who originally wrote the patents on on WaveTech uh, right. for for this device, and and he was talking about this that there's a privileged state that we have like one really cool chance to 
change or alter our, our lens choice. And that's right before we're about to put the lens in the eye. So we exactly. all saw that opportunity. Take me through the evolution from being one of the first or the first commercial install through their various um, changes. And psychologically, at some points, were you, was that a tough transition? Um, or were Well, you, what t- was tough through that? about it was not the fact that nobody knew what the heck it was, you know? And nobody knew what the injuries in game was going to be. But I had known Nick Curtis a long time. And he said, D, this is technology that's going to change the way people do ophthalmology. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. And what do you do? And, you know, I've known him 30 years. And what do you do 20 years into a friendship? But you trust somebody that has, you know, the ability to pick out technology that's going to last or endure. So needless to say, surround yourself with all of those people that I mentioned, then surround yourself with some of the smartest engineers in the world and the smartest guy I know, and that's Michael Breen, um, you know, line yourself up with that. And the first year I was with it, um, Tom Berryman was the, uh, uh, CFO, if you will. Right. And we just didn't make a whole lot of progress, but we started to. And I did in that first year have my aha moment. And that aha moment was I took a patient to the operating room with about two bucks of astigmatism against the rule. All my preoperative information said it was with the rule. I wasn't too worried about that much astigmatism. I get in there or it tells me it's against the rule. And what do I do? Right. I did LRIs at the time, not Torah cleanses. So I did AIs or limbal relaxants incisions at 90 so, of course, what did I find the next day? But now I've got twice as much astigmatism wow. as I started with. I thought, oh, my God, this is horrible. And I had uh, Michael Breen look at the, you know, the fringe patterns and the, and the testing. And he said, no, it looks or it looks pretty good. So when I went to do the other the, the patient's second eye, everything was the same. Everything said 90 and all my pre-op get to the operating room at Aura said 180. So what did I do? I listened to Aura this time made my cuts at 180, decreases astigmatism to uh, half a diopter or less. 2025, a couple of weeks out, 2020 with a minus a minus a quarter. I mean, life is good. So I went back and, you know, titrated his right eye with some other, he looked like he had a 360 degree LRI. You know, so what kind of a live and learn thing. But that was really my aha moment because I really, if I had listened the first time, so really where I wanted, what I wanted to do is astigmatism had been something that I had watched um, over the last, say, you know, four years before that. So the last 14 years, I've really been looking at astigmatism and I look at patients, you know, and I'm sure, Gary, even in your practice, you look at patients that you didn't do any astigmatism. They had no ancillary, ancillary, fancy ancillary testing, just a straightforward A scan. And I'm always amazed that a person is like minus 125 plus 250 at 90 and they're, you know, 2040 with nothing. Or 2030. Yeah, their surgical equivalent is so good and they're happy. And I think, God, this patient isn't worrying about astigmatism. Well, you know, also too, I'm in Florida. And in spite of the fact that it's an older population, there's still a lot of very young, you know, um, baby boomers here that have all had LASIK. So now... It's mix. It's a now a big mixed bag about astigmatism. 
pre-existing astigmatism, what their topography looked like. And I was not a cornea guy. So, you know, I did corneal transplants and, you know, and they ended up with astigmatism, but they could see, you know? Right. It's a different game. Yeah. And it was all relative at the time. And now I needed to figure out what I was going to do. Now, torque lenses, you know, the, the star lens was out and, you know, and I was really, I had been using plate lenses with Chiron for many, many years. And I thought, you know, I want to do this. I really want to do this. So, it's kind of my first initiation into um, tericity, big time tericity, with the 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 um, Starlins. And you know, at the time, unfortunately, they don't make them anymore. But you, you really had four powers because you could put it in right, right side up, right side down. <laughs> That's right. That's and right. I knew how plate lenses work, so you know, I really had. I felt like I was ahead of the game for that. So it's just kind of where I started, and then I realized how quickly, how valuable the iterations became of of orange, you know, then it became verify and verify kind of changed the game. That's when wave tech began to be looked at by the big companies, the big three, I would call them Allergan, Alcon and, and Bosch and Loam. And that's when, you know, Alcon got very interested and all these studies were done. And I did, you know, stigmatism studies and I did, you know, um, all kinds of studies with wave tech. So I really learned the machine and the gestalt of the machine. I knew where I could, you know, I knew that I had to follow a recipe, you know, prep the intraocular pressure was a must. It had to be measured. Right. You know, corneal edema, um, from your incisions, you really had to look at your incisions. And, you know, the first, the first 50 cases that I did, I, re, I did a patient that, and I, I talk about Bill Wiley, but I did a patient that was post-refractive, and I was two diopters off. Right. And I called Bill, and Bill, bless his little pee-picking heart, sat on the phone with me while I explanted that guy's lens, and we did Aura, or at the time, uh, yeah, well, it would have been, well, it was still orange at that time, but we did orange on him until we got a great reading, and he said, just let's put this lens in. So we did. And the guy, I, I mean, unbelievable. And we just had to really look at some stuff. Right. You know, so at the same time, I was able to do the guy's other cataract and then call Billy back on the phone. And he said, okay, let's look at these readings, you know, take a picture, send it to me. And he, we t- he talked me through it. So I had a very, very happy patient because I had somebody that thought out of the box way out of the box and was very patient. And the thing I guess I learned most about working with um, Wave Tech and Orange and now Verify and Verify Plus and is patience, patience that you have to have with yourself. And you have to look at your outcomes. If you don't put your data in a data bank, you don't know where you've been and you don't know where you're going. Right, right. And I really believe that, in that too. I do too. And I mean, it's like we're so... And I still am amazed, Gary, and you know this. I'm still amazed when I ask somebody, well, what's your induced, what's your surgically induced astigmatism for your right eyes? What's your surgically induced astigma for your left eyes? They don't even know. And it's different for every implant you use. And if you use a sub two 1.8 incision, which I use, and if I'm using a monofocal lens that goes through that, I have nothing. My, you know, my my surgically induced astigmatism is 0.1, if any. Right. And if I enlarge to 2.8 or 2.4, you got to know what those are, even though they've become nominal for some people. And it's still a learning process. And, and, you know, I'm also a, a old fashioned surgeon. I still do my primary incision is at 90 degrees. And 
I was taught that way. It's the furthest away from the central cornea. It causes the least amount of astigmatism when you make a near clear or clear cornea. Maybe not a scleral pocket like your partner did way back then. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but, but you know, um, near clear or clear cornea at 90, and I induce very little astigmatism. So I'm really, even though it seems to be old-fashioned, everybody's learning temporal, I really, all my data and my results are based on a 90-degree incision. So I really feel like I, I, being farthest away from the cornea, you know, I really am not doing the patient at really much of an injustice at all, which is why I can look at patients I saw almost 30 years ago, and they don't really have much astigmatism that I've induced. You know, it's still pretty close to what it was postoperatively, you know, before, right. you know, of course, FACO, not extra caps. Right, but. right, right, right. So... You know, I think it's you've brought up some very interesting things about, you know, trusting the technology. And that's, I, I, as I've talked to some people who have really invested, you know, themselves in Aura, they, they can almost all point to a, a case at which sort of the pendulum swung and now they trust the Aura data more than they trust their, um, their pre-op biometry. Right. Well, and you, know, and you know, Gary, it has to be, you know, and we work for that Holy Grail. And the Holy Grail is, as you know, that all your pre-operative measurements match your intraoperative measurements. Right. And if right. the world was perfect, perfect all the time. You and I would not be challenged. You would not be in, inventing things. Right. Um, and I would not be talking with you. You know what I mean? Right. So it is. And it is one of those trustful things. And, you know, I work with some other companies. I've worked with Cassini. Um, I'm a KOL for Cassini. I started out with them, you know, as a KOL. And, and, and we've come a long way. We still have a long way to go because the, re the reason I got involved with, with Cassini and it's total corneal astigmatism. It's measuring the posterior cornea as well as the anterior cornea was because I was in kind of a place where I wasn't a real big Alcon user of any kind. What was going to happen when Alcon bought WaveTech and where would that leave me if they choose to not take care of the users, but base it on the implants that you use? So I was really kind of looking for something else that was going to help me. Or what if the aura wouldn't work one day? Right. I wanted my pre-op data to be really good. And we're getting there. We're not there yet, but we're getting there with Cassini. Right. But to and, be just to be clear, though, I feel like Alcon has done a really nice job oh, of continuing. Done an and and that, so now I'm just more prepared. Right. Right. So, yeah. And Alcon has done a fabulous job. In fact, you know, I've done I've been very fortunate the last uh, I've done two of the Axis meetings. I'm getting ready to do one at the Academy. I mean, one at ASCRS and then one in Houston uh, a couple of weeks after um, ASCRS. So I'll tell you, and they have some, again, some great people, you know, Tina Williams, um, you know, Michael Breen, all, you know, Tom Paddock, all the engineers that started with all of that, you know, right. um, and, 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 you know, so I'm so lucky uh, that Alcon has really, really come to the, to the plate for me and really helped me um, continue to be a better surgeon. And, uh, you know, of course I have verify plus, uh, and the difference between verify and verify plus is there's some new software, but also you can look in your ocular and see the, um, measurements and, um, it's like an overlay, right? It's yeah, like, it's well, like, yeah, right. It, it is like an overlay. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's really nice because you don't have to look up and look at the monitor. However, 
There are some docs that do the true vision and they do like the heads up. And also too, the cart gives me a lot of information on the fringe pattern, making sure the cornea is not, you know, moist and that the, at the Purkinje images are clear, right. Et cetera, et cetera. So they both give you a good idea, but their new iteration coming out, I'm not at liberty to speak to everything about it, but it's going to be even better. And, you know, so I'm excited for that. I'm excited. And I watched, you know, um, having papers approved or uh, approved and, and, and presented at ESCRS back in Milan, Milano, and then in, again in Amsterdam and then in London. And then London was the last year that um, WaveTech was an entity on its own. It was bought up by Alcon after that. So I've not been to ESCRS since then, but you know, I've, I've been, you know, Mark Packer and I are, I still work together quite often about Aura and I've got a, a paper I'm writing right now about TrueLine and Aura. So there's so much information in that little box and effective lens position, as you know, is a big um, proponent of how well we do. And um, right, right. You it's know, a critical factor. The, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's one of the little things that they're working on and they have some great information about, but, and then with my world being, you know, 25 to 30% of my patients are post-refractive and I'm getting community calls. Uh, the cornea specialist up in Sarasota refers me patients that have had post-refractive uh, surgery. Cause he said, I, you know, Dr. Stevenson and I may be able to do the same amount of, you know, both do good cataract surgery, but she's going to give you a better chance because she's got aura. Right. And I had people from South Florida send it in my way as well. And, you know, so it's been a great ride for me and there's so much valuable information. And, you know, when I look back and I think, you know, I don't want my patients to have any astigmatism. And I, I've been doing this thing now with using eye trace after your, um, your placement of your toric lenses. And it tells you if you turn it five degrees, you'll get this much more right. uh, astigmatism correction. And it's been wild because I've got, uh, uh, you know, 50, 60 patients that says one degree, you know, whatever. So right. I'm so you right on you're, and it's you're such a great on. feeling. It's such a great feeling for, for, um, pay, for me as the physician, but for my patients. And then you learn more things like, geez, you flip the axis and give them with the rule astigmatism. So you're going to overcorrect your astigmatism against the rule, give them a half a diopter with the rule, now they've got increased depth of field. So now they, on in a mono in a in a monofocal toric lens, you know they they're Jager two Jager three. So I've done them just as good a job as if I was to have put a multifocal toric lens in. You know, right. so you can play with all that knowledge once you understand it, and that's what's so fabulous about this. That's what's so exciting when you start to treat astigmatism. And don't get me wrong, Gary. Because you know me, you know, I'm always the first one to say, ah, I'm not sure I believe that or, hey, you, I really you believe that. You call BS on some things sometimes. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, exactly. So, and not every patient right. is 100%. Well, you right. Know, not every patient is 100%. But I'll tell you, my outcomes, I've got about 98 in Aura data bank. I've got 98% within a half, 86% within a quarter. So I'm, I'm loving life. And I've worked really hard. That's my last... 182 toric patients. Wow. So I'm loving life and I've worked really hard to get there. And, you know, like you, um, we're on a learning, you know, we're, it's an adventure every day in ophthalmology, ophthalmology is an adventure. And, and, you know, we get involved personally and our families are so important. 
and the time we spend away from our families is important. But the time that I've spent away from my family with about and with Aura has made my life so much better and my outcomes for my patients so much better. It, you know, yeah. it's 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 one of those once for me, one of those once in a lifetime things. And I didn't think it could get much better than that. And then and then get involved. Then I got involved, you know, almost five years ago with Lenzar. So, you know, Fimpto and, and Aura and Cassini and, and you know, I, I'm loving life in ophthalmology. Well, you know, I, I really think, am. But it's hard work. Yeah. And data bank, data bank, data bank and analyzing stuff, analyzing what did I do wrong? What was wrong? What what made this patient, you know, not only patient satisfaction, but before you get there, you've got to give them the you got to give them the 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 vision. You've got to give them the outcome, and then you worry about the patient satisfaction. Right. You know, it's a kind of a double-edged sword. Well, Dee, I love your passion. I love the fact that uh, every time I'm at a meeting, uh, your intellectual curiosity um, is just um, it's palpable. You're always asking the right questions. Um, you're trying to get better, and that's that's really inspiring. Um, Sometimes, you know, we can go through our profession and we can sort of hit a plateau. Um, I think that's kind of what you were expressing before you got into Aura or Orange is that you kind of felt like you were at a plateau and you're sort of looking to take your professional skills, your outcomes, you know, however you want to say it, to a different level. And you were willing to go on the journey knowing that there were going to be some ups and downs along the way. And, you know, but I'll tell you, it's amazing. Our field is so technology driven. And I can tell you that this is the best step off being first user that I've ever done. Now, have I, I've, I've used other things in the, not in, in the first wave, but not in the first per as the first person, right. but in the first wave. And you learn that, but boy, howdy, what it's allowed me to do is meet people like you, Bill Wiley, you know, people that just, you know, uh, We've got a bunch you of know. characters in our profession. Let's be honest. Oh my We've gosh! Gotta... <laughs> I mean, just Lance, Fer- you know, Lance Ferguson. Every right. time I'm with him, he he teaches me something. Right. You know, right. Even if it's back to something basic, and that's where I think, as a as professionals in ophthalmology that love technology, the one thing we always have to go back to, and I I think this is my advice to my daughter as a as a a young woman. My my advice to you as a young, inspiring ophthalmologist is always reevaluate where you've been so that you know where you're going. And once you get to where you're going, look back on where you come from because it all builds on something. And good choices and good, good paths are great, but we've all had to you know, get that tar on our shoes and have to walk through the house with it. That's right. And live with it and live with it for a while and look at the stains. So absolutely. Well, Dee, thank you so much for sharing a little bit about what it's like to be first and what it's like to go through that journey. And also the joy of, of the victory on the other side of seeing those patients who, you know, um, you know, you've helped people, you know, you've helped people who otherwise may not have had the, the best outcome achieve something that you're both proud of. Um, and honestly, you know, I think that there's a, there, you've mentioned the engineers. Um, I'll also mention Tom Frenzy. I think he had a huge role. Oh my in, God. I, but that was my know, other thing. I was with Tom Berryman and then all of a sudden what took us to the next level was getting Tom Frenzy involved. Yeah. And, and he is the reason that this company went and has 
done what it's done without Tom Frenzy. What a leader. What a what a believer. What a leader. He guided all of us. Yeah. And, you know, he was the one that said, I can make this happen. We can make this happen. And he was always such a he is today a dear, dear friend and, and such a great leader. And I'm so proud of him and well, proud to have everyone under Everyone in ophthalmology loves Tom Frenzy. There's just, I don't think anyone, I think that's almost a given. So, um, so, you know, that being said, um, D, you're another, you're another one of those, those people that, um, we all just love to, to hang out with, learn from, talk to. Um, and so I think we'll just, we'll leave it there. Um, if at our next meeting, I guess it's coming up shortly, uh, let's definitely sit down and, and continue this conversation. How's that sound? Sounds great, Gary. Thank you awesome. for being my pal. Oh, You're awesome. it's a, it's a true honor and joy. In a specialty as innovative as ophthalmology, we can probably rest assured that new technologies and techniques will continue to come our way. We will always want to change the game and in turn will be taxed with determining when something new is worth our time, energy, and headspace. As Dee described, surrounding ourselves with the right people, asking the right questions, analyzing our outcomes, and calling on our colleagues all become trusted lifelines in this pursuit. Above all that though is that gut check that visceral confirmation that the end game might just be what you want it to be. In Dee's case, it certainly was. This has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid with Dr. Gary Wirtz. If you like what you hear, please head over to iTunes and rate, review, and subscribe. If there's a topic you'd like to delve into or a brain you'd like to pick, your suggestions are welcome. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon.